never seen a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, you've never seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. The Video Nasties podcast, my name's Christopher Brown. When we say 1968's Night of the Living Dead is influential in horror, it's easy to kind of um, put that to one side, to ignore it. You know, yeah, it's, it's a famous old horror film. It, it did a lot. There are, however, certain points in cinema that are massively important for how uh, genre, or indeed cinema generally, moves on. So you could argue that the shower scene in Psycho from 1960 is hugely influential on how horror and how cinema violence is seen. Indeed, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's all those books about this, but um, it's not surprising that both those films, this and uh, Psycho and Night of the Living Dead, are both in black and white when, you know, previous films it's been in colour. Night of the Living Dead is influential because for numerous reasons. One is the way it's shot. It's another thing is its, uh, its political views. And thirdly, its use of violence. Now, before 1968, there were violent films. And the film... And, uh, you know, it's, so it's, it's silly to kind of pretend that there hasn't been things this explicit before. There indeed, of course, have been political films and films that use kind of a documentary realness to kind of progress the plot before. However, in a time of uh, political uncertainty, as was, uh, Night of the Living Dead stood out. However, that's not strictly true. What actually happened was it found its audience later on, like a lot of George A. Romero films. However, tonight... For this podcast, what I want to do is look at Night, uh, talk about why it's influential, what makes it important, what elements are better. Then we'll talk about the gore, we'll talk about its impact, and then finally, bizarrely, how it could ever possibly reach section three of the video nasties. So, Night Living Dead effectively reinvents the zombie film. What it does is it moves away from uh, the idea of monsters who are controlled through some kind of mildly racist, maybe, um, voodoo curse or whatever, and moves more, far more towards the, the dead coming back to life because of, insert reason, gods are unhappy. Um, the, um, the, there's a muck spreader with pest, a special pesticide in it, which is Manchester Morgue, or there's... Um, a meteorite, as is the example in Night of the Living Dead. Its DNA actually bends more to do with Richard Matheson's I Am Legend and something like the Alamo or you know or Zulu or one of those kind of you know um, siege movies. Indeed, you know you think about um, 
John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, which kind of, you know, takes this concept and moves it away from zombies towards you know, gang members. And again, you know, the, what we have is a, a, a cheap, a, you know, it utilizes cheapness to um, create a, a believable world in a small location and over, you know, what period of what appears to be one evening. Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> Night of the living dead, the dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. <laughs> adventure in fear, an experience in shock more shattering than your strangest nightmare, night of the living dead, a night with the dead who cannot die, a night of total terror. of the living dead so what is the story the story is about a group of people all of you know a family who is a who are a sick daughter in the basement a couple who uh, are a little bit you know wet around the ears uh, a guy called um ben who is uh, who who's one of the cat who's like the, the the lead character and um a young woman who has become comatose after seeing her brother be attacked by a ghoul they all find a farmhouse seemingly out the way from nowhere near to a cemetery and uh, the dead are being reanimated and are trying to come into the house and attack them so they can eat them So, George Romero, at this point, before he made the film, was not famous as a, as a filmmaker. This was his kind of initial step towards that infamy. He made um, TV ads and industrial films for a company called Latent Image. And him and a guy called John Russo and uh, Russell Steiner... Uh, grouped together to make their first feature film. Initially, the plan was to have a small budget uh, with only $6,000. However, they managed to balloon that to $114,000 um, to create the film. 
the script itself went through numerous reiterations, initially being like a horror comedy before Romero kind of knuckled down and kind of created something far more sinister. As I say, taking inspiration, quite liberal inspiration in part, from Richard Matheson's book, I Am Legend, about a, a plague that turns people into vamp- seemingly sort of like vampires. Romero, when he wrote the film, didn't think that the characters, or didn't believe the characters to be actually like zombies, which is why they don't call them that, they call them ghouls, because they seemingly are so different to what would be, you know, a Haitian zombie, as it were. So the characters um, are in the farmhouse, it must just come inside, and, and, and the key thing is the tensions within the groups, and their attempts to kind of get away from the house, um, aware that you know help isn't necessarily coming because all hell is breaking loose and these tensions lead to um, disagreements and indeed violence and in the end we have a, a bleak ending uh, which uh, you know is kind of the path of the course for zombie films okay so the film itself therefore is low budget and it needs, therefore, to utilise certain things to create a, a believable world. It's in black and white, which instantly makes people think more documentary footage by the time 68 comes along. It's less, you know, films are in colour. Um, reality on the news is black and white. And it's filmed that way. Um, Romero uses um, his techniques as an ad director to uh, to kind of create pace um so outdoor scenes have to be done um dubbed in indoor scenes are the the cameras are static so what you get is um characters tend to say something and then move and so and then you know another shot would be established and and, and the, the dialogue would follow people around the room as they argued this would create dynamicism in terms of um continual movement so you know what is that quite talky picture where lots of people are arguing all the time uh, is giving it more strength in terms of more understanding and believability because people are you know you can see the space more um, th- by doing that it doesn't feel stagey so you, you know you don't kind of feel like the camera is in one place although the you know when people are basically you know giving lots of filler backstory uh, Dwayne Jones who plays Ben um he, you know, he does some fantastic stuff, but, you know, when he's kind of given his backstory of how he got there, um, it, it has to be, it has to be uh, very much, you know, a static camera picking up his dialogue and how he speaks. So people tend to say something and then move, which is a kind of, a, well, it's an old advertising uh, plan, you know, in terms of trying to get that dynamicism into, uh, uh, on, the, on the thing. Uh, on the on the screen, it's also um, so you've got black and white. <clears throat> sorry, so you've got black and white photography. You've got a uh, a slightly documentary style with a, a roving, seemingly a roving camera. You have believability, maybe because of budget, maybe because of naivety from George. The, you know, our monsters um, don't are, are not you know make mistakes. They you know they don't break the wind on the first go. They're not super strength. They're Constantly, you know, battling against, uh, you know, the forces of nature, as it were. 
our characters as well are deeply human and, uh, and flawed. You can argue that um, Ben, uh, Dwayne Jones's Ben, um, is wrong in terms of his, his decision to stay up and really should have, uh, you know, took the advice of uh, Carl Hardman's character, Harry, who is... Um, who uh, spends a lot of time arguing that they should just basically hide in the basement. So the film has a, a feel of, um, of something different. It also benefits from a, it, its tight structure. We don't, uh, we cut away to very little. We understand less. We only understand the world in terms of the stories the characters tell us, what we see briefly from outside the window, and also a, t uh, a TV set, which again adds a, a layer of realism, which... Uh, Romero is able to infuse into the film. They knew that the the budget constraints meant that they would have to, you know, create it in a, a seemingly normal place, and that benefits that the horror because you know this isn't gore in a in a castle with you know Count Dracula or Frankenstein there. It's very different to that. It's 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 a monster that um, comes to you in your home and indeed, according to Romero, the news report seemingly seems to be already on the streets. Romero does not pull his punches. He says himself, the film opens with a situation that has hurriedly disintegrated to a point of little hope and moves progressively towards absolute despair and ultimate tragedy. Upon completion, the film and this despair... Um, created issues for for the production company to uh, to get a distribution deal. the uh, The concern was around gore effects, where uh, zombies would eat um, flesh, um, which obviously is a, a standard staple in the zombie genre now, but at the time was seen as being uh, a little bit a little bit close to the bone. And this bleak ending, um, where uh, our the Listen, I'm fucking hell. I'm gonna spoil it. If you've not seen it, just fucking stop this now. Watch it. Come back. Christ Almighty, it's on fucking YouTube. You know what I mean? Um, a um, you know, uh, where everyone dies. The film soundtrack is um taken from uh, library music. Something he, he again does with Dawn of the Dead to to a less degree, although there is Goblin in there as well, um, which um, shows again uh, Romero's ability to create a found uh, footage kind of elements in terms of um, music that, although you know normally poor quality as, as the library can be, uh, grabs the attention and, 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 and also matches the mood. So it finally gets a release. And all hell breaks loose. So Night of the Living Dead premiered on October 1st, 1968 at the Fulton Theatre in Pittsburgh, which is where the film was sh nearby where the film was shot. It was shown nationally as a Saturday afternoon matinee, which is perfectly standard for horror at the time. So the audience consists of people who, let's be honest with you, would normally not... Well, they're not the type of people who would spend Saturday afternoon going to the pictures, i.e. kids. The MPAA film rating system was not in place until November of that year, so even young children were able to purchase tickets. Roger Ebert childhood theatre owners and parents who allowed children access to the film with such strong horror content. Kids knew 
at this point that horror was, um, you know, uh, a bit of fun. Ramirez's films did not provide fun. What it provided was uh, tension, arguments, adult themes, and uh, adult themes, you know, an adult viewpoint to the world, and uh, a bleak response. Variety responded with this incredible line. Until the Supreme Court established clear-cut guidelines for the pornography of violence, Nice Living Dead will serve nicely as an outer limit defect definition by example. In a mere 90 minutes, this horror film, pun intended, casts serious aspersions on the integrity and social responsibility of its Pittsburgh-based makers, distributor Walter Reed, the film industry as a whole, and exhibitors who booked the picture, as well as raising doubts about the future of the regional cinema movement and about the moral health of filmgoers who cheerfully opt for this unrelieved orgy of sadism. Effectively, the film had at that point received very little interest from critics apart from to use it as a stick to show exactly how bad the world was now becoming because of this terrible response. It did, however, make a lot of money. What actually happened was it was kind of reassessed in the, uh, in the, in the late 60s before kind of being reissued in the US as a garnered as, actually, you know what? You know this film that was actually quite shocking caused a lot of problems? Actually a classic, would you believe? And um, sure enough, over time, it has kind of become a, a bastion. So, you know, the Library of Congress had the film to its National Film Registry in 1999, with other films deemed culturally, historically and aesthetically significant. And um, in 2001, the film was ranked in the 100 films from AFI's 100 Years, 100 Frills list for most heart-pounding, you know, exciting movies. You can argue, therefore, that the film itself was able to um, transcend the criticism of its gore, um, mainly because well, nowadays it feels almost quite a little bit, bit hokey. It feels like a, a bit of a B-movie, but with these incredibly strong scenes. Um, but also as well, I always wonder what it would be like, the excitement you must have felt like, oh my God, this is like really, really like extreme. You know, it, it kind of must have took kids by surprise. You know, oh, you'd be dead excited though, wouldn't you? <laughs> Even though it was, you know, I think the ending probably would be more shocking. You know, our, our baddie, our goodies don't get away with it. You know, the unrelenting um, kind of grimness of the situation would probably be the thing that you'd be most upset about. The film also contains um, elements in terms of uh, masculinity. So the, there's arguments galore about the right thing to do. Men were men, and they they bash and they they break and they 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 fight and they they you know who's the alpha dog as it were. It's thrown around a lot, but the reality of that is that um, they are ultimately quite futile in their attempts and the mistakes they make are, are frequent. Um, you could argue that the even though you know you could suggest that the the best thing to do would be to go in the basement. Um, the people that do go in the basement are killed. So uh, it's unclear whether that even that would have been the best route. Ben is in the most part calm. He's also um, in the most part um, a hero as such. His The ending of him being shot is all the more shocking, of course, because Dwayne Jones is a black actor. So you've got a police shooting uh, a character who's... Uh, ruffling feathers, arguing with people and um, trying to take charge of the situation. Um, and it, in 1968, a time when it is still all kicking off in the US in terms of race, as it probably, you know, you could argue still is. 
Romero says he picked the character, the, the actor, to play Ben of Dwayne Jones because he was the best person for the job. He was, at the time, an unknown theatre actor. And indeed, he is the best person in the film by quite some margin. At this point, a character like that would not... An actor in that position would not normally get a role like this. And because it's from outside the mainstream, because it's a, a, a position where um, the actor... You know, they, the, the filmmakers were able to pick whichever actor they wanted. They were able to pick, you know, who, what they saw as the best person for the job. Romero at the time said, I didn't pick him because he was black. I picked him because he was great. However, even then you can still touch this with the fact that it was an outlier in terms of how, how certain actors are portrayed in films. But also, you know, the end scene where he's shot and then put on a burning pyre is even more shocking. It brings it brings the fantasy of the world uh, that Romero's created crashing horribly into the the um, footage that people may be seeing on the televisions at home at that time. And again, this documentary realism adds to this. The film also found an audience because the um, the copyright status has been messed up in America. <laughs> As well, they dropped the um, the copyright placeholder, which kind of meant because of American law that anyone can release it. What that meant was that um, we get lots of different versions of the film over the years, where people have took elements and changed it and colorized it and all this nonsense. <clears throat> the best um, version you want to see now is the Criterion Blu-ray release, which is absolutely beautiful. So you can argue that Romero. Um, between you know effectively from this film created a new advent for horror it did it, it indeed you know I mean, while it, this film invented the zombie movie when we talk about dawn of the dead i think we'll uh, we'll be you know because we'll have to talk about that one as well we'll have we will be in a better position to discuss the impact of romero's work on the zombie genre you know like because nice and living dead kind of creates it but Dawn makes, um, you know, zombie movies famous and big and that, you know, there's a flood of them. The tone shifts, though, from films like, you know, you can see it, you know, compare this to something like Spider Baby in 1967. And then films that come afterwards through the 70s, um, the uh, exploitation um elements and and the bringing of horror to people's homes as well there's paranoia um you know uh, in terms of um using the world around you to kind of pique the interest of, 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 of what what horror is so when we look at films like uh, this film we can see you know elements of, of, of paranoia from from the cold war and also um as an elements in terms of Vietnam and generally while the film is merely speaking really I think of an unease in terms of the way society is changing in the US and and um, the way or maybe not changing enough you know, Romero is an old hippie uh, was an old hippie or a young hippie at this point and he saw a world where people weren't cooperating and, and I think that kind of led to his concerns about what the future may hold 
And of course, you know, regardless of, you know, how much is this feeling of, you know, the zombies outside, um, and, you know, we live in very um, politicised times again, but, you know, th this concern of the worry of, you know, the mass, the horde outside, and what that means, and why are they so aggressive, and why is everyone so fucking obsessed with leaving the EU, for example? And people trying to kind of hoard off those uh, that part of the world and kind of keep it for themselves. The graininess of the black and white footage and the footage that they see on television mimics the violence that people will be seeing at home through Vietnam War as well. The film marks a, although it has a wide selection of characters, marks a, a concern about the rottenness uh, the battering down of the door of the nuclear family. Um, the, the, the strength of the the the, the unit, the uh, the family unit, from the nineteen fifties seems to have been removed by a, a corruption in terms of American values. All these things, all these these themes, they don't as averse as the anti-capitalist themes we see at Dawn of the Dead. Instead, what they are, in night, musings, and in the same way that the outside world keeps on, this awful malevolent force, keeps on trying to prick in and attack the people in the house, there is a bleed in terms of a an upside-down, uneasy world that isn't being growing and being where we want it to be, a kind of chipping away at the uh, the structure of what is, in the end, uh, you know, as Ramiro himself said, an I Am Legend kind of copycat clone. So the film was released in 1969 uh, with cuts. So those cuts were related to the trial murder and all the flesh-eating was removed in the UK. So, uh, yeah, heavily cut, but past an X at that point. It was released on VHS um, <clears throat> and was seized uh, as part of the Vigil Nasty scare, although it wasn't prosecuted. Um, which seems odd now, really, to be honest with you. I mean, it seems strange that the film itself would uh, kind of succumb to, the, to, to, to that kind of thing. It, it, I mean, it contains cannibalism, which uh, at the time was definitely poo-pooed. And it's uh, certainly more violent, maybe, than... Um, than you would expect. But at the same time, it's still, you know, a horror film featuring, um, you know, people, you know, ugh, well, it's, it, it's got zombies in it and it's got gut munching, which are two things that would catch the eye. Although, obviously, because it was a classic film, unsurprisingly, didn't uh, didn't get onto the section two list. As I say, uh, if you want to watch this film, you are spoiled for choice, my friends. It will be on YouTube. It is on the Internet Archive because, as we say, it's out of copyright in America. If you want to actually pay for things, it is on a Blu-ray, which is by far the best. That Criterion release is fucking lovely. It's absolutely mint. And as well, if you don't want to pay for it and you live in the UK, it's currently on BBC iPlayer as well, although I would argue it's not the best uh, cut. Well, it's not the best print of that film. So Romero's um, Night of the Living Dead remains a classic and, um, and it's certainly uh, worth uh, checking out um, if you have not, if, which I find bizarre. You'd be listening to this and you've not watched it, but you know, I think it's very much available. Um, 
it mixes lots of themes, lots of ideas, and um, unlike uh, a lot of Ramirez's later work, isn't quite as explicit in terms of what it's trying to do, which is to its benefit. So yeah, check it out. <laughs> bizarre, bizarre recommendation. as soon as they find out about us. All persons who die during this crisis, from whatever cause, will come back to life to seek human victims. I'm telling you, they can't get in here. Coming to get you, Barbara. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Uh, as I say, I've kind of just kind of just done this. If you want more, um, if you go to from that I've done about this, there is a, a different version of about Night of the Living Dead, which very much is about Romero and Romero kind of growing into the role of being a filmmaker, uh, which is in the last horror podcast that I did. I also covered briefly um, Night the Living Dead and its impact, mainly going into everyone kicking off, which I think I've covered here, to be fair, uh, with um, History of Horror podcast as well. So if you Google those two, I think that one's in the Masters of Horror episode. If you want to get hold of me, please do. My email address is Christopher at DallasHorrorPodcast.com or it's VideoNastiesPodcast at gmail.com. Get me on Twitter, it's at Orange underscore Monkey, or you go to the websites, videonastiespodcast.com or thelasthorrorpodcast.com and leave a message on stuff and I will see it and pick it up. Next week, we are looking at a Charles Band film. So the guy who did Puppet Master, before he did Puppet things like Puppet Master, he made a 1982 sci-fi horror called Parasite. So, until then, take care. Speak to you soon. I have never seen a video nasty. I wouldn't. I have far too much. But how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, You've never seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. to get you, Barbara.